Kiddos, you are dismissed to head up the children's church. Have fun up there. Um, the rest of us, if you have your Bibles tonight, why don't you open up to the book of Acts. Um, we're going to be fishing up chapter 14 tonight and kind of our journey through this book. Um, looking at verses 21 through 28. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay because we have the words right up there on the screen as well. Um, why don't we go ahead and read it and then we're going to ask the Lord to bless you upon our time and then we will get into it. So verses 21 through 28 of chapter 14 tells us this. After preaching the good news in Derby. And making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. Then they traveled back through Pisidia and Pamphylia. They reached the word, they preached the word in Perga, and then went down to Italia. Finally, they arrived by ship to Antioch of Syria, where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too, and they stayed there with the believers for a long time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again just for this book that we hold in our hands. God, not just words, but your holy word, your written word spoken to us for, Lord, our instruction, for our encouragement to challenge us, to change us. Tonight, I just pray, God, that you would move in our lives. Father, there's so many distractions that can keep our eyes off of you, and yet, for these next moments, I just pray you would just give us the gift of focus. Help us to put aside what's happened today or what's going on tomorrow. And I just pray that you would just do a work in all of our hearts. Just move, I pray, and change us more and more in the image of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We glorify during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at um, what's commonly known as Paul's first missionary journey, where, where Paul and, and Barnabas and John Mark started out with them, but left shortly thereafter. But they, they started out um, missionaries, essentially, sent out from, from Antioch and Syria, and, and, and they go, and the first place they go was the island of Cyprus, and they pretty much hit the entire island from, from west to east and do an incredible work of God there. And, and from there, they, they, they take a ship north and end up in what's today modern-day Turkey um, and, and end up in a, in a different Antioch up there where they, they reach the number of people, but the ones that didn't like their message so much booted them, right? And they chased them out of town. And so uh, they, they went from there to the city of Iconium. And, and again, some people there received their message. And there was a group of people that didn't like their message at all, so much so that um, they threatened to have Paul and Barnabas stoned, meaning they were going to take them and, and bury them up to their waist and throw stones at them until they died, essentially is what they threatened to do to them. So, so Paul and Barnabas left Iconium and didn't quit. They just kept on going, right? And they end up in this, in, end up in this city of, of Lystra where um, they see this crippled man and, and, and Paul looks at him and recognizes the faith in this man's eyes and, and he tells this man to, to stand up and walk and this, this man has been crippled his entire life. He stands up and, and he walks and, and the people of that town, which understand they're, they're from a, a, an age, a, a time period in history that, um, that they were very much the mindset that there wasn't just one God, but there were lots of gods. Like you've heard of the Greek gods, like 
Zeus or Hermes. Well, those two gods in particular are who these people thought Paul and Barnabas were. They thought they were these Greek gods that had come down in, in human form to do this incredible miracle. But Paul and Barnabas were just like, no, we're, we're, we're not gods at all. We serve the one true God, but we're not gods. And, and furthermore, let me tell you that these gods you're serving aren't real gods either. They're, they're fake. But let us tell you about the one true God and his son that, that he sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there were some people again in that town that liked that message. Others did not. In fact, they, they did not like it so much that they took Paul and they did stone him. Um, left him for dead. Thought he was dead. However, he got up, shook the dust off of him. Sure he, I'm sure he had a migraine, a headache of sorts um, from being pelted with rocks. But, but he, he got up. And, and what did he do? He goes back into the same town and spends a little bit of time there, grabs Barnabas, and, and they head on to the next city, which is the one we talked about here tonight, which is the city of Derby. Now, we don't know a lot about what happened in the city of Derby, other than really just the good part. Verse 21 tells us that, that they preached the good news and they made many disciples. So um, whatever it was, the people very much received the message um, well there. And um, it, it's probably a good thing because... All the troubles and the trials and the hardships they dealt with in other cities, I'm guessing they were ready for a time of reprieve, right? A a time of rest just a little bit from the persecution, and and God gave them that gift in the city of Derby. Now, it's kind of interesting that God did that, and I think for good reason, because the very next thing we see in, in verse 22 is that they went not forward, but back into Lystra, where Paul was stoned, and then back into Iconium, where he was threatened to be stoned, and then back into Antioch, where he was, um, they were threatened as well and driven out of town, and I'm thinking to myself, like, Antioch is that way, and you could have just gone back to the, the, the two different Antiochs, right? Antioch, where they were sent from, their original church, and the different Antioch in, like, Turkey, right? You, like, you could have gone that way, because that's the way you were going, and instead you went back that way to get over there, And going back that way, you went through these crazy towns that tried to have you killed. And I'm thinking to myself, how courageous and bold and full of faith are these men? I mean, and and it would seem just totally crazy, like they were completely out of their mind if it wasn't for what the rest of verse 22 tells us, that they didn't go that way just to chance fate. No, they went that way for a purpose, they, they went there, as verse 22 says, to strengthen the believers in each one of those towns, to encourage them to continue in the faith, reminding them that, look, this Christian life isn't hard. You're going to suffer hardships. You're going to suffer trials in the midst of this Christian walk. I mean, Paul and Barnabas truly loved these people. They had to have, to, to, to risk their lives to go minister to them. And I think to a large part why is they looked at these people as their spiritual children of sort, these people they had led to the Lord and they felt responsible to them. And, and, and you think about that in this, this mission they were, they, were, they were doing, this message that as they go back and say, look, stand firm in the faith, that the Christian life's hard. Who, who better to tell them that than Paul and Barnabas, who, who had experienced some of, of the worst that persecution had to offer? Yet they went back because they wanted these Christians to succeed. They didn't want them to, to fall away. They, they wanted them to, to stand strong in the faith. So they, so they went back and began to minister. Now, how long did they spend in each one of these places? We don't really know. Um, all we know is what they did there. 
uh, they encouraged them to continue in the faith. I mean, what was that all about? I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I, I can only speculate what it was that Paul and Barnabas shared with these people. But, but if I had to guess, I, I am sure they encouraged them to, to flee from sin and temptation, to, to not go back to their old lives, but to press forward and, and, and live in the new life and the new person that they have become in, in Christ. I'm just kind of imagining what Paul may have shared with these people, and I think maybe he, he might have shared something like he shared to the Ephesian church later on in Ephesians 4, verses 21 through 24, where Paul wrote this, since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception, and instead let the Holy Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, put on that new nature created to be like God, that nature that's, that's true holy and righteous. I'm just guessing that as they went back through these towns, they just began to pour themselves into these people. Maybe we're just reminding them of who they are in Christ, reminding them how important it is that, that they as Christians have one another's back, that they're praying for one another, that they're, they're lifting one another up. And again, just reminding them to, 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 to press forward, to, to not turn back even though hardship is clearly, clearly coming. And Paul and Barnabas, they wanted to make sure these people were prepared for what was coming. Like I said, Paul and Barnabas knew exactly what the cost of following Jesus was, and they knew when they left that these people were going to experience the full brunt of that persecution. They wanted to make sure that these people didn't abandon their walk with Jesus when that trial came. As I was thinking about that, I was, I was thinking about that parable that Jesus told in the Gospels when he was walking the earth. He gave this parable about that was kind of known as the seed and the sower where it pictures this farmer that's, that's walking down the road and, and some seeds fall out of his pouch along the road and, and birds come and eat it up and, and some, some seeds fall along the side of the road but it's in shallow rocky soil, right? And then there's some seed that falls among thorns and some in some good soil. But, but later on in Matthew, he, he gives the explanation to that. And, and the one I want to focus on for just a second is that, is that second seed that, that fell amongst the, the rock, that shallow soil. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. He says, the seed on the rocky soil, the seed represents the message of Christ, the gospel. The seed of the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. And, and so Jesus gives this parable that, that some people, they, they, they receive this message of Jesus and they begin to follow him and then they feel like this full brunt of persecution and problems and hardships and they become overwhelmed by it to the point that they're just like, I can't handle this, I'm done. And they walk away from the Lord. And, and I really believe that was the heart of, of why Paul and Barnabas went back to these towns because they didn't want that to happen to these new Christians, to these new believers. And, and one way they also tried to, to help them from doing that is by appointing these leaders, which they call elders here essentially, these, these ministers of the church that would lead the church. We don't know exactly who they are. We don't know much about them. Um, they, they couldn't have been too seasoned because they had just come to faith in the Lord and and yet they saw something in these men that they put over the church, and, and, and they did. And, and what I find really interesting is that they, they just turned it to churches over to these men and, and, says, and, and they entrusted them to the care of the Lord. With prayer and fasting, they turned these elders over to the Lord. Now, you just think about this for a moment. 
Paul and Barnabas were leaving, not knowing if they would ever come back. They had, met, they, had, they had led these people to Jesus, knowing that persecution and trials were going to come, know that the enemy, Satan, was going to come fully against them to try to take their feet off from under them. And they had to put these men in charge and wave goodbye and just hope that this church stood firm. That takes, that takes incredible faith to do that, to, to be able to let go like that. And yet in that, I think there's a great lesson for us even in that, like, have you ever faced a situation where you were worried about an outcome? Faced with some decision, like, if I choose this, what's going to happen? If I choose this, what's going to happen? I, I don't know how this is going to go, God, and I just don't really know what to do. Or, or I'll tell you, as a parent, as a parent, one thing I worry about sometimes is, man, what, what decisions are my kids going to make when they're out of my sight, when they're out of my house, as they move into adulthood, as they are now doing, like, are they going to stand firm in the Lord? Are they going to stay in the church? Are they going to continue serving God? Are they going to fall to the wayside like so many others do? And, and those things can bring anxiety and worry to our lives. And, and yet, if we can learn something from Paul and Barnabas, the idea I think here is, look, you, we just need to do everything we know in our, in our, in our, that's humanly possible to, to make sure that we're doing God's will, that, that we're honoring him in, in, in our actions. But at the end of the day, we have to trust God with the results. Whether it's a great thing or a not-so-great thing, do all that we can and just trust God with the rest. That's what they did. I think it's just a great example for us in our lives. Now, kind of the rest of this passage... I like what it says in verse 24 and 25. You know, they, they traveled back through Pisidia and, and Pamphylia. Again, these were kind of just Roman districts. They were going back through there. And, and as they went, they, they hit Perga and Italia. And what did they do? They preached the word. I mean, even on their way back home, like to, the, to, their, to, to their place of rest, where they're going to be done with their mission, they didn't quit. They just kept on going, kept on preaching the word. And they finally got back home to their church in Antioch. And what did they do? They, they reported all the incredible things that God had done. And finally, they had a time of rest. And I was just thinking about this report. Uh, have, you, have you ever heard a missionary speak? You know, they're on the mission field, and like, they come back, and they give this incredible report of, of all that God has done. Can you imagine being in the church of Antioch, hearing the stories um, that, that Paul and Barnabas were telling about what God had done on this incredible mission over the years that they were doing that? I mean, I mean think about, as they told them, what happened on the island of Cyprus. Like, like how they, they came up against this, what Acts describes as this sorcerer. And, and Paul began to tell them how he spoke and that man was blind. Right? You, you made him go blind? Whoa, cool. You know, I mean, just imagine that moment, right? Or, or how cool would it be to hear the stories that, that aren't even in Scripture, but... but I mean, they led hundreds and hundreds of people to faith in Christ. And I, I just think about the stories of that, uh, of these people that were delivered from these sins, delivered from who knows what, how their lives were changed, and, and how they just went on and on talking about that. Or maybe when Paul was telling the story about Lystra, and they're like, they, they thought you guys were the gods? That's crazy. Pa Paul, what, what was it like to get stoned? Well, i got to tell you, it was a little rocky at first, but it's okay to laugh in church. <laughs> Anyways, my point is it had to be incredibly encouraging, didn't it? 
encouraging for that church to just hear the, the move of the power of God. It had to have been encouraging for, for Paul and Barnabas to, to recount these things. I mean, they had to have been just wiped out physically, spiritually, and yet they come back and they, and they share this. It had to have just given them an incredible charge to, to the faith of the people. And as I was thinking about that, you know, I just really wished that that was something we did more here. You know, if God speaks to you in the Word sometime, you're going through something and, man, you read the Word of God or you hear something on the radio, some song speaks to you and it just changes you. Can I tell you something? I want to hear about it. Wouldn't that be cool to hear people stand up here and talk about what God has done? Or like you, you have this opportunity to invite somebody to church or share the, share the gospel with somebody, you lead somebody to Jesus. We need to hear about those things. That builds excitement and just incredible, just like, oh, in the church. We need to do that more often, I think, than we do. Now, as we think about these verses, I just want to hit on a few kind of important takeaways um, in our remaining time together. I'm just thinking about the, what we talked about here tonight and kind of bring it back home to ourselves. And one thing I think about as we think about these few verses tonight is the reality of our difficult journey as Christians. Again, in verse 22, it says here that we must suffer hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What that tells me is that contrary to popular belief, the Christian life isn't easy. You know, like there's this misnomer, this misunderstanding that is common, especially in American Christianity, that we think if we try really, really hard to be a good Christian and do all the right things, that life's going to be a piece of cake. Everything's going to be peachy keen. Everything's going to be good. Like there's this mentality that's... Can I tell you something? That's not what the Bible tells us. In fact, that's the exact opposite of pretty much everything we see in Scripture. I mean, I was thinking this week about some of the examples we have. Like, the entire narrative of Scripture is, is, yeah, there's a lot of great things, but every major character in Scripture has problems and trials and hardships and issues. Even though they were incredible, incredible men and women of faith, I mean, I think of, like, Noah, a man that, that God looked down and saw that everything was sin everywhere all the time, and yet he looked at this man, Noah, and he saw one righteous man. And yet, that man preached righteousness, the New Testament tells us. He preached to these people for over a hundred years to be saved, and they just completely ignored him. I'm sure mocked him. At the end of the day, only he and his family ended up on that boat. I mean, hardships for decades. I think of Job, a very common story in Scripture. The very first verse of Job tells us this, that Job was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and strayed away from evil. Now, you would think a man like that would have a gravy train for a life, wouldn't you? Not so. What Scripture tell us? And one day he lost everything that he owned. All of his kids were killed. And he's left there with nothing. Shortly after that, his whole body is inflicted with boils and pain and sores. And what's his support? He has friends and his wife saying, curse God and die. I mean, in the end, it turned out great. But I'm just saying he had hardships. He had problems. He had troubles. I mean, Abraham was the same way. David fought giants, ran for his whole life or for, for years before God fulfilled the promise he gave him. 
Elijah, the incredible man of God. There was a time where he felt like he was completely alone, depressed, and asking God to die. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the great prophets who preached their entire life the message of God, and everybody rejected him. Everybody ignored him. In the end, they were murdered for their message. You got John the Apostle, who was boiled in oil, and when that didn't do him in, they chucked him on a penal colony for the rest of his life to be a prisoner on an island. I mean, you have the rest of the apostles who, who committed their whole lives to Christ, did everything they, they knew to do, and yet what they do, every single one of them was murdered for their faith. Maybe the greatest example of all, Jesus. Who, who deserved a, a more great life than him? I mean, if anybody deserved a gravy life, it was Jesus. And, and yet Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, don't, he, I have no place to lay my head. He, he came into this world, he had nothing, he left with nothing, and yet he, he suffered, he died, he did all these things even though he was perfect. Well, what that tells me, my point is, is this, is that suffering is part of the Christian life. Hardships are part of the Christian experience and there's no way to escape it. Why do we go through these things? Well, I mean, one obvious reason is because we have an enemy called Satan who has all kinds of people on his side that causes all kinds of problems. But there's a greater reason even than that. And it's because God uses these hardships, these trials, these sufferings. He uses them. He allows them in our lives for a purpose, which is to make us more like Jesus. Now, I think of Romans 5, 3 through 4, where it says we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Rejoice? Absolutely. Why? Because for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops character, and character strengthens our hope of salvation. James speaks of the similar thing in James 1, brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, he says, consider it an opportunity for great joy, knowing when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What that's telling us is that these trials, these problems, these issues in our lives it's like we're like this, this piece of stone and there's a perfect picture inside of that stone and God's the sculptor and every trial he's chipping little pieces off until finally one day we're going to look just like Jesus. Perfect. You know, in Scripture, in those verses and other places, there's this illustration that is often used of the Christian life being likened to a marathon runner. You know, the idea is that we're, we're running a race as Christians, and, and the further this race goes on, the harder and harder it's going to become. You think about a marathon race runner, what, 26 miles? Is that what it is? Like, you just don't jump in a marathon and, try and hope to finish. I mean, this chubby boy wouldn't make it three miles. Right? I mean, anybody want to challenge? I mean, maybe Cassie, but I mean, other than, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't do it. You see, with a marathon, no, I mean, it starts with training. Like, you run one mile, and then two, and then three, then five, then ten, and you, and you grow up to the point where you're, you're, you're physically tough and mentally tough to where you can endure this incredible marathon run and, and actually be able to finish. And the same is true in our lives as Christians. Our trials, when we first come to faith, I mean, they're, they seem big at the time, and yet years later we look back at them and go, Pfft. That was nothing compared to what I'm dealing with today. But, but the idea is through our Christian life, through trials, through hardships, through problems, the Lord is developing, just like 
Physical endurance for a running marathon is developing spiritual endurance in our lives so that as we progress on in our life, He knowing the things we're going to face in the future, we'll be in a position to where we can endure those things and stand firm in the faith and not fall back. And on the other side of those things, we're even more perfected into the image of Christ than we were way back then. I mean, it, it really is a beautiful thing when we look at it from God's perspective. Going through it, enduring it in real time, it stinks. But if we'll stay the course, it's worth it. I was thinking about those, some of the men I, I mentioned and, and people in Scripture of the Old Testament, New Testament. And Hebrews 12 talks about many of them. Hebrews 11 is kind of the faith chapter, and it kind of goes through the annals of faith of all these different men and women. And, and it says this in verses 1 and 2 in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And I just like that last part because Jesus is the ultimate picture of someone who walked through his trials and on the other side of it he was glorified in an incredible an incredible way and that's a picture of what we have to look forward to someday as we endure this life as we stand firm in the faith we too will be glorified one day we too will be in the very presence of almighty god and we will look back and say it was all worth it because we get to experience in the present so the reality of our journey as Christians is difficulty, which because of that, we need in our lives, we need in the church, we need edification, exhortation, and encouragement. That needs to be happening in the body of Christ. Now, those are big words. I'm going to tell you exactly what those words mean. And they all really work together in a beautiful way. First, to edify. What does edify mean? Edify, just by the definition, if you would Google it, it means to enlighten or to educate. From a scriptural idea, it's the idea of this, to speak biblical truth into the lives of people. To speak the Bible into each other's lives. Where exhortation is the idea to urge or to, to spur on somebody. And so where edification is speaking biblical truth, exhortation is, is encouraging somebody, urging people on to obey the scriptures. This is what it says, you can do it right? Where encouragement is the idea to build up, to embolden, to inspire. So after you give somebody a biblical truth and say, this is what you need to do in your life, now I come alongside of you and I'm your cheerleader to help you in this journey, to help you to follow what this thing says. And friends, we need all these things happening in the church. Uh, Pastor, da Pastor David Guzik, I really like him, his commentary, he said this, many Christians need strengthening in their souls. Many need exhorting to continue in the faith. It is no small thing to walk with the Lord. Year after year, trial after trial, it takes a strong soul and an encouraged faith. Friends, the point is this. The further along we go in the Christian life, the more we need one another if we want to succeed. Again, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas says they strengthen the believers. How they do that, I mean, we can only guess. But one thing I know is they spoke the word of God into their lives. 
They encouraged them to stand firm. I'm sure they, as they left these elders in charge, they told them, you feed the flock. You feed these people the Word of God. You know, I mean, you, you come alongside them. You teach them. I mean, I can only imagine, but we, we have other passages of Scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote, like to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. Timothy being the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and this is what he wrote to him. Until I get there, focus on the reading of the Scriptures to the church. Encourage the believers and teach them. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the Word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage the people with good teaching. And I can just guess that as Paul and Barnabas were going to each one of these towns, that's exactly what they were telling them to do. Or like what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, Encourage one another. Build one another up. Something we need to do. We, we need this in our lives. You and me both. Can I tell you something? I need people to speak the Word of God into me. Well, you're the pastor. Yeah, so what? I'm still a man. I'm still a human. My heart still beats. I need you to speak the Word of God into my life, and you need me to speak the Word of God into your life, and you need to speak that Word of God into one another's life. We need to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. We need to be reminded of what it says at times. We need to learn from one another. From the youngest to the oldest, or shall I say the seasoned, we need one another. Well, what can we learn from kids? Well, let me tell you, Psalm 8-2 tells us you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Have you ever heard that verse from the mouth of babes? That's basically that, what that verse is. From the mouth of babes. I, isn't it amazing sometimes the most profound lessons that we learn come from the mouths of just innocent little kids or from like an inquiring youth that just sees something in a way that we never could and you just like... I never would have seen that. I mean, I've learned so much from teaching you and from little kids in Awana or whatever it is. I mean, it's just amazing. We need one another. We need to edify one another. We need to exhort one another. As Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us, think of ways to motivate one another, to spur one another on to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now as the day of his return is drawing near. Can I tell you something? Every single one of us at times need a kick in the backside. We do. Here's what I mean. We all need to be prodded every once in a while because we get a little bit complacent. Anybody ever have a problem with that? Get a little bit complacent? We, we need somebody to like, let's go. Anybody ever have an attitude? <laughs> At least some of us are honest, right? You know something? We need Christian brothers and sisters at time to say, knock it off. <laughs> Don't act like that. Come on, you're, you belong to Christ. There's times where we mess up or we sin. You know what? The Bible tells us sin brings destruction. Not just to our lives, but to the people around us that we're supposed to love. We need Christians to speak into our lives when they see those things to say, stop. Don't go down that road. You know where that road leads? 
As Galatians 6, 1 tells us, brothers and sisters, if a believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly bring that person back on the right path. Friends, that's our responsibility to one another, and every one of us need it. This has to happen. Not always easy. I mean, if you're the one with the attitude when somebody says, knock it off. I will in a second. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not easy. I mean, if, if, if we're in sin, our mind's not right, and when somebody confronts us, it's offensive. You know what Proverbs 27, 6 says? This is from the Bible says, the smartest dude that ever walked the earth, Solomon. I would contest that Jesus was probably smarter, but anyways, the Bible tells us Solomon, right? He says this, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from the enemy. You know, somebody that's not your friend, they can tell you what you want to hear. But the true friend will come alongside you and tell you the truth. We also need to encourage each other. We have times in our lives when we get down, times where we struggle. We experience grief, frustration. Friends, we need one another. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 12 tells us a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. Two can stand back to back and conquer, but three are even better. A triple-braided cord is not easily broken. Friends, when the church stands together, when Christians come together and stand together, it doesn't matter what Satan throws our way. We can stand. So we need those things because of the trials. We need each other. But can I tell you something? There's one more key to this as we close. And this is the most important key. Now, it, trials, hardships, it's a reality. Because of that reality, we, we need one another. But there's a greater piece of this that will for sure get us to the finish line. And it's exactly what we see in Paul and Barnabas. They had a passion for Jesus. Jesus was the focus of their lives. It didn't matter what they went through because Christ was at the center of everything they did. Their love for Christ motivated them to put themselves in danger at the risk of their own lives. Because Jesus had so impacted them, it didn't matter what they had to face. All that mattered to them is that they brought glory and honor to the name of Jesus. Why else would they have gone back to those towns to do what they did? Jesus was the motivation. I mean, the Apostle Paul said this later on in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Just listen to what he says here. He says, I count all things as worthless when compared with the infinite value of just knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything, counting it all as garbage just so that I could gain Christ to become one with him. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection of the dead. Think about that. He's like, God, take it all away. It's garbage. It don't mean anything. All I want is Jesus. Can you say that in your life? Is Jesus your greatest passion? Is Jesus your greatest distraction? Are you sold out for Him? Friends, the only way we can truly experience the relationship with Christ 
that he desires to have with us is to make him the center of everything that we do and think and say. To put aside the distractions, to put aside the selfishness, to put aside our own wants and needs, and to say, Jesus, my life is yours. Take it and do with it what you wish. Friends, when we can get there, I don't care what trial we face, what circumstance comes our way, we'll stand strong. Men's breakfast this morning, what we, what we read in men's breakfast, Paul says, I've learned to be rich. I've, I've, I've had nothing. I've been rich. Doesn't matter. I've learned to be content in all things. Why? Because he had Jesus. And that's all that mattered. You know, I was just wondering maybe if Paul was here tonight, if we were the church that, that he was going to tell us about these hardships, what would he tell us in closing? And I just want to read you a couple verses. I think maybe this is what he would say. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. He'd say it to us, Brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. I think Paul would say that. That's his words. I'm just speaking to you what he wrote. Or, or, or 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. Brothers and sisters, we are pressed on every side by troubles. But we're not crushed. We may be perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're, we might be hunted down, but we're not abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Friends, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. You see what he's saying? He's like, look, you're going through these trials, but just know because you're going through them, when you endure them, people are going to see Jesus in you. You're going to be a witness to the world. Or, or maybe a few verses later, he says, for our present troubles and are, are small, they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them that will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that we cannot see. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. I think that's what he would tell us. And, and maybe he would tell us this in closing. Friends, I fought the good fight. I finished the race and I've, been, and I've remained faithful. And now I have awaiting me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to give me when I see him. And he would look us straight in the eye and he'd tell us that, that this, prize, this prize is not just for me. If you will eagerly await the Lord's return, if you will set your eyes on Him, if you will serve Him and not back down, friends, He has a crown for you too. So stand firm in the faith and trust the Lord. Friends, the Christian life isn't easy, but it's worth it. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and never walk away. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You so much for who You are, Lord. Thank you, God, for your patience with us. Lord, I know I can speak for myself that at times, Lord, I fail miserably in the midst of trials. And yet your word tells me that I'm no longer condemned. I'm no longer judged. It's true for all of us, Lord. We've all messed up. We've all failed. And yet, God, for those of us that know you, 
those of us that know Christ the Savior, who belong to you, who are your children, God, your word tells us that you have purified us. You've made us holy. You see us as your own. Let us be encouraged by that. Let, let us also be encouraged by what this word says, that as we go through these difficulties and trials, we're not going them because, God, you've abandoned us. Lord, we're, we're going them through them because you're using them to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, your Son. Help us, God, to keep that perspective. And as we go through them, Lord, help us to use it as an opportunity to show others Jesus, to witness, so that people look at our lives and see how we walk through those trials and begin to wonder, even to the point of asking, how do you go through those things which sets hope? And God, those opportunities will give us an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And God, just give us that strength that focus, that, that mindset. And through that, Heavenly Father, be glorified in and through us. God, and the last thing that I would pray as we close, if there's anybody in this place that has never made a decision to follow Jesus, I pray they would tonight. God, your word says we've all sinned, we've all messed up, we all deserve judgment. Yet your Bible says also that Jesus died for every single one of us. He went to the cross, he bore our sin, he died, he was buried, he rose again, Lord, and through that, God, your word tells us that what he did was good enough to save our souls for eternity. And if anybody in here has never made the decision to follow Christ, I pray, Lord God, that they would just in this moment right now come to you in prayer and, and just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, come into my life and be my Savior. Let them tonight, Lord, what are somebody here, what are somebody listening, let them make the decision to follow you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.